0: On December the 4th, 1857, the world-renowned missionary, David Livingston, spoke to the students of Cambridge University about the tribulations and the motivations of his various expeditions in Africa. Now, it must be said that Livingston is not the example of the kind of theology or missiology that I've been advocating over the last several weeks I would not classify Livingston as a Pauline missionary. I probably wouldn't suggest that our church partner with him if that hypothetical situation were to occur. But that's not to say that God did not use Livingston in unique ways. For instance, his explorations helped to open up the interior of Africa to future missionaries. His humane approach to treatment of natives was in stark contrast to the imperialistic attitude of other Europeans of his day and his depiction in his writings and his opposition to the African slave trade helped to further the abolition movement in the West. But it is his 1857 address at Cambridge that draws my attention this morning because in it, Livingston expresses the kind of heart that ought to characterize every missionary and every missional church. On that date, Livingston said this, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice that I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity in the consciousness of doing good and peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory, which shall hereafter be revealed in us and for us. And note those last words. I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Those were the words of a man who suffered tremendously throughout his life and on his journeys. Now, of course, those same words, I never made a sacrifice, could have been uttered by William Carey or Adoniram Judson or even the Apostle Paul. Men who likewise endured tremendous sufferings for the cause of Christ. But when they placed the cost of their sufferings on the scales of eternity against the present joys and the eternal pleasures which they found on the path of radical obedience to Christ, they found that the eternal glory vastly outweighed their light momentary afflictions. Pauline missionaries and Pauline churches do not consider what they give up in the cause of missions to be a sacrifice. Rather, they count it as joy. So enraptured are Pauline missionaries and so enraptured are Pauline churches by that scene in Revelation chapter 7 where the redeemed of every tribe and tongue and people and nation are gathered around the throne and they're worshiping the lamb in unrestrained joy. And so addicted are these people to the joys that can be found only in the, the cause of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit, that they wouldn't trade that kind of life for anything, even with all of its manifold sorrows and trials and sufferings. Pauline missions, which is the only kind of missions I'm interested in, Pauline missions is motivated by joy, not by sacrifice. And that joy is what will keep missionaries on the field and will keep missional churches giving and praying, and proclaiming the gospel here when all other motivations falter. I want you to remember that phrase, I never made a sacrifice. We're going to return to it at the end of this morning's sermon. Today we're going to conclude what has turned into a four-part series on global missions and the local church. Over the past four weeks, we have examined the second half of Romans chapter 15, in which Paul expresses his desire to establish a mission partnership with the church at Rome. In this passage, we're allowed a glimpse into the way that Paul thought about, the way that he approached the task of missions. We saw in week number one why Paul wanted to partner with the church at Rome, As he set his sights beyond Rome to Spain and the western reaches of the Roman Empire. It was because they bore the characteristics of a missional church. Faith, goodness, knowledge, and wisdom. These characteristics make a church strong and healthy and able to fulfill the function ongoing of a missional church, that is to proclaim the gospel and complete the Great Commission where they are, to pray faithfully and fervently for their missionary partners and to provide the funds that are necessary to send missionaries to the unreached nations of the world. That was week one. We then spent the next two weeks, weeks two and three, unpacking the marks or the characteristics of a Pauline missionary from verses 15 to 21. And we found that a Pauline missionary has an orthodox theology, a confident authority, a theocentric philosophy, a Calvinistic soteriology, a discipleship focused methodology, a charismatic pneumatology, and a pioneering missiology. And we unpacked all of those terms and Pointed to where they're found in this passage in weeks two and three. The driving thesis behind those three sermons on the missional church and the Pauline missionary has been this we want to be the kind of church that Paul wanted to partner with, and we want to partner with the kind of missionary that Paul was. Well, now that we've examined the characteristics of the missional church and the characteristics of the missionary in this one final sermon, we're going to look at verses 22 to 33, and we're going to find five more characteristics that now are shared by both the church and the missionary. Five shared characteristics which are essential if the mission partnership between the local church and the global missionary is to work. Characteristic number one, the missional church and the missionary must share the same sense of mission priorities. Paul was a man who lived according to a set of convictions, a set of priorities that had been established for him by Christ himself when the Lord called and commissioned him to bring the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. What priorities were those? Well, Paul outlined them in the previous section. Look back with me at verses 19 to 21, where Paul says, "...so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation." But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Jesus had called and commissioned Paul to lay the foundations of the Gentile church. That was his commission. And that was why, despite his fervent desire to visit Rome, he had been unable to do so until now. We pick up at verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. What's the reason? Well, because I have this distinct commission to lay the foundations of the Gentile church where it has not yet been laid. And there's already a church in Rome. That's the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Paul's apostolic commission took precedence over his personal desires. His absence from Rome was not indicative of a lack of love, but rather was indicative of the presence of a clearly defined set of priorities to which Paul steadfastly adhered. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had spent 10 years fulfilling that commission in the Eastern Roman Empire, in places like Syria, Galatia, Asia Minor, and Greece. Rome already had a church. It had probably been started by Jewish pilgrims who had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. Those Jewish pilgrims from Rome who had come for the feast of Pentecost and had heard Peter preach that morning of Christ as Lord. And they had taken the gospel back with them to Rome. Or maybe the gospel had come to Rome by means of any number of travelers who passed through the city, which had become the hub of all commerce in the Mediterranean world. In any case, the fact was, there was a church in Rome, and Paul was a church planter. And so Rome simply didn't match his apostolic priorities. Furthermore, Paul had further apostolic responsibilities which were taking him back east to Jerusalem before he could travel west to Rome. Namely, he had gone about the regions of Asia Minor and Macedonia and he had collected an offering for the saints in Jerusalem that we'll speak about momentarily. The point is that Paul's missionary priorities prohibited him from coming to Rome sooner, despite his intense longing for many years to visit there. And it was his missionary priorities that would eventually take him to Rome, but only briefly on his way to Spain. And I suspect that the Roman church understood that. There's no indication that they didn't. Did they want Paul to come visit? Of course, who wouldn't? I mean, the the guy was an apostle, he had seen the risen Christ. He'd been transported to the third heaven, whatever that means, in 2 Corinthians 12 2. He had received surpassing revelations of Christ Himself, 2 Corinthians 12.7. But the Roman church knew that Paul did not belong to them. He belonged to Christ. And so they likewise submitted their personal desires to have Paul visit to the greater missionary priorities that Christ had given to the church, namely to make disciples of all nations by sacrificially supplying and sending Paul west to Spain where the name of Christ was not known. See, that's how a missionary partnership works between the church and the missionary. Both the missionary and the missional church sacrifice their personal desires to the missionary priorities which Christ has given to the church and the missionary. Now there's a great example of this shared sense of mission priority in Acts chapter 13 where we find the first great missional church outside of the original church in Jerusalem. And we find the sending of the first missionaries to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that is, Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now that's a pretty astounding lineup of leaders. We don't know much about Simeon or Lucius or Menae, all we know is that they were gifted prophets and teachers, but we know a lot about Barnabas and Paul. And it's probably safe to say that though the other three were gifted and capable as prophets and teachers and leaders of the church at Antioch, Barnabas and Paul were the ones who were especially gifted. And yet the Spirit called the church to set them apart and to send them off to the distant unchurched regions of the empire. You can kind of imagine the conversation among the personnel team or the deacons at Antioch. I mean, we, we can't send away Paul and Barnabas. They're our best teachers. Uh, we'll, we'll send Menaean or, or Lucius. Well, the church at Antioch didn't do that. It was a special place, and this was a special time. Incredible things were happening there. People, we hear in, in Acts chapter 11 and 13, people were being converted in mass. Prophecies were being given. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. And it was just at that time, when everything was going so well, when the, the smile of God was on the church at Antioch, and blessings were abundant every day and every week, that the Lord called away their best and their brightest. And you know what? The church in Antioch sent them out, and Paul and Barnabas went. Why? Because both the missionary and the missional church share a sense of mission priorities. The kingdom of Christ is bigger than any one church. And the moment that the church forgets that, the moment it becomes possessive of its resources, be it money or people, that church in that moment begins to die. So beloved, if we want to be a missional church... We're going to have to live by a set of missionary priorities. We're going to have to give up the dream of kingdom building here. And our own little fiefdom of Nixa. The dreams of bigger buildings and bigger budgets and bigger programs and a beautiful sanctuary. All of that has to be sacrificed to Christ. If Jesus wants our money... He can have it. If he wants our people, he can have them. All that we have, all of our resources, the very best of it, be it of people and of money, must be sacrificed to the mission priority. Go and make disciples of all nations. Our people don't belong to us. Our money doesn't belong to us. Our building doesn't belong to us. Our missionaries don't belong to us. We only get to see our missionaries once every three years, if that. And that's not out of a lack of mutual love or desire to be together. It's because both we and they have priorities established for us by Christ. And it's all about his mission. So number one, if a mission partnership is going to work between the local church and the global missionary, they must share the sense of mission priorities. Number two, in order for a mission partnership to work, the missionary and the missional church must share a sense of missionary providence or mission providence. Now, this point is not immediately apparent from the text of Romans 15, so we're going to have to pull what we know about Paul's missionary history from the book of Acts and from some of his later letters. In Romans, Paul twice expresses his desire and his intention to come to Rome. The first time is back in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, where he tells the church, "'For God is my witness.'" That I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So that's Paul's heart. That's his desire. He wants to come. He's heard about their faith. He wants to minister among them. He wants to receive their ministry to him. In Romans 15, Paul expresses that desire and intention again. We've already seen in verses 22 to 25 that Paul expresses or explains that it was his calling and his commission to take the gospel where Christ has not been named that had been preventing him from coming to Rome so far. And it was this same calling and commission that would, he hoped, finally allow him to come to Rome and through Rome to go off to Spain. But at present, he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to deliver a collection for the famine stricken saints who are in Judea. So we pick up in verse 28. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So those are his plans. The question that I want to ask is was he right? Did those plans that he expresses in Romans 15, all right, I, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to drop off this collection, and then when I've done that, I'm going to come to Rome, I'm going to visit with you for a while, I hope to be supplied by you, and then I'm going to go off to Spain. Did that actually happen? Well, if we continue reading, we'll find that Paul had some ominous doubts about what would happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. Because he implores the Roman church to pray for him, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. As it turns out, Paul's fears were not unfounded. Paul was not welcome in Jerusalem when he arrived. The Jews did not take kindly to apostates from Judaism, and that's what they viewed Paul as. They especially did not take kindly to those who led others into this apostasy. They viewed Paul's gospel as blasphemy, as destructive of the very foundations of of Judaism. Not only did Paul worship a Galilean prophet as the Son of God, but he taught that the law of Moses, the very foundation of jewish life and and religion the law of moses was obsolete according to paul fulfilled in christ He declared that justification before God came not through sacrifices or or rituals, but through faith in Christ alone. And perhaps worst of all, Paul taught that inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant was by spiritual descent, not physical descent. It was by being born again to a new and living faith rather than being born physically into a family line. Meaning that believing Gentiles are the children of Abraham right alongside believing Jews. And that those Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they weren't even the children of Abraham at all. That's the kind of teaching that could get a guy killed in Jerusalem. And it nearly did for Paul. It's little wonder that when he arrived in Jerusalem, his very presence there provoked a riot, which led to his arrest, his trial, his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, and eventually his appeal to Caesar and his trip to Rome. So yes, Paul did eventually come to Rome, but it wasn't the way that he expected in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. When Paul came to Rome, it was in chains, You can read about these events in Acts chapter 21 to 28, but by the end of Acts, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and he's awaiting trial before Caesar. Luke tells us that Paul spent two years in Rome, and that he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And at that point, the narrative of Acts ends. So we have to piece together what happened after that. What happened after Acts? We have to piece together from later Pauline writings like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. And it would appear from those letters that somewhere around the year 62 AD, Paul was released from his Roman captivity. But instead of heading west towards Spain, it appears that he headed back east that he went back through the regions of Ephesus and Macedonia and Crete and other places in the northeastern Mediterranean. We know that by the year 66, Paul was back in prison in Rome. 2 Timothy 1.8 and 4.21 tell us that. And by the year 67, he was dead. Beheaded according to church tradition. There is no indication that Paul ever made it to Spain. Except one little line from a letter from a man named Clement, who was the Bishop of Rome towards the end of the first century, who speaks of Paul having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the West. The point I'm trying to make is that even the Apostle Paul couldn't predict nor plan his travels. But all of his movements and all of his journeys were subject to the sovereign providence of God. There were a thousand factors which Paul could not control. The weather, uh, his safety, the the safety of the journey, the reaction of the Jerusalem crowd, the, the judgments of the various authorities before whom he stood trial. He couldn't control any of those factors. Therefore, his plans had to be submitted not only to the priorities established for him by Christ, but to the providence of God, which governs all things. Missionaries must understand this or else they're going to go insane. There's nothing more infuriating than trying to keep a schedule in the third world. It's horrible. You cannot do it. Furthermore, missional churches need to understand this. For example, Matt and Emily Tyler, they are our missionaries in Shanghai. They've been waiting to return to China since May. They don't know when they'll be able to return. They're ready and wanting to go at any moment. But they're waiting for the Chinese government to reopen their borders. Who knows when that's going to happen? In the meantime, what would a missional church do with missionaries whose plans have been thwarted by factors outside of their control, but whose plans are submitted to the sovereign providence of God? What should a missional church do with missionaries like Matt and Emily? Cut off their funding because they're not in China doing what we pay them to do? That's the way the world thinks. That's not the way the missional church thinks. We remain patient and generous, understanding that all plans, but especially missionary plans, are subject to the providence of God and are not ultimately under our control. Every missionary and every missional church must take to heart the warning of James. James 4, verses 13 to 16. Come now, you who say, We don't want boastful missionaries and we don't want to be a boastful church. Therefore, in all of our mission planning, in all of our mission funding, in all of our mission going, we just hang over all of it, the banner, if the Lord wills. He's in control. Third, in order for a mission partnership to work, both the missionaries and the missional church must share a sense of mission provision. By this, I mean to ideas. The first is obvious. The second is maybe not so obvious. First, simply put, missions takes money. It takes money. It takes money to travel. It takes money to eat. It takes money to live. It takes money to take care of basic health needs. It takes money. Paul knew this, which is why he says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped there on my journey by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. That's a very polite way of saying, I hope that you'll fund me on my mission to Spain. In fact, the phrase that he uses, be helped, had all but become a technical term for missionary support in the New Testament. In other words, Paul is unashamedly yet politely asking the church at Rome for money. He's asking them for sufficient financial aid for his proposed mission trip to Spain. The implication, of course, I think, is that missionaries shouldn't be afraid to ask churches for money. As though missions could be done without it. And it's hard. It's hard for missionaries to come in here and, and to make a proposal and to, and to ask for money. It's, it's just not comfortable. And so what do missional churches do? We do everything we can to ease that, to try to make it comfortable, and we do that by by just being a church that understands it takes money. It takes funding. And we do that by being generous with the funding that we give. If we're going to if we're going to err in our provision of missions, let's err on the side of generosity rather than caution. No church ever regretted being overly generous in missions. Practically speaking, if the Lord wills us to stay here in Nixon, Missouri, in the land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak, the land of plenty and comfort, while he calls others out of their comfort zones to go into the dangers and the discomforts of the mission field, then really, what right do we have to be stingy? how will we answer the Lord when he calls us to account for the fact that we spent and spent and spent in order to live in greater and greater degrees of comfort and luxury while entire nations everlastingly perish for want of the gospel. But the second, maybe less obvious idea arising from this text is that mission provision arises from a sense of indebtedness. In other words, We owe the nations to get the gospel to them. We are in debt to those nations that have never heard of the gospel. How did we get in debt to those nations? By hearing the gospel. Our having the gospel, having access to the salvation, which is through faith in Christ alone, has placed us in debt to those nations that do not have that access. Well, how does that work? I'm going to make a link between Romans 15 and Romans 1 and show you how I'm getting this. So look at verses 25 of Romans 15. Paul describes the offering that he's collected, which he's he's taking to Jerusalem for the famine-stricken saints who were there. Verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. Note that. They owe it. The the saints in Macedonia and Achaia owe the the poverty-stricken saints in Judea this offering. They owe it to them. For... If the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. That's the way Paul thought. And so throughout his third missionary journey, he worked to collect an offering among the predominantly Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia and and Greece and elsewhere for the poor saints in Judea. And he says there's two reasons. There's two reasons why I'm collecting this offering. Number one is a practical reason. There's You have some money and they don't have any. They're starving. So there's a moral imperative, the imperative of love placed upon the wealthier Gentiles of Macedonia and Achaia to come to the aid of their brothers and their sisters in Judea. So that was the first reason for the collection. But the second reason is a theological reason. Paul states it in verse 27, the Gentiles had benefited from the spiritual blessings that they received through the Jewish Christians. And now it was time for the Jewish Christians to benefit from the material blessings of the Gentile Christians. So Paul's operating with the same principle that he laid out in Romans chapter 11, namely the Jews are the natural branches, right? Of the olive tree of God, the people of God. They're the natural branches. The Gentiles are wild branches that have been grafted into the Lord's olive tree. The Gentiles were the beneficiaries of the Jewish Messiah who arose out of the Jewish people as the fulfillment of the Jewish covenant, who established a Jewish church, which then extended out to and and encompassed and welcomed in the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are the newcomers to the people of God. Therefore, according to Paul, they are morally indebted to the Jews for the blessings that they had received. Okay, that's the way Paul's reasoning in Romans 15. Do you see that? You... Gentiles in Macedonian and you owe material blessings to the Jewish Christians who are starving because their spiritual blessings have come to you. You receive spiritual blessings from them, so you owe material blessings to them. Well, the collection for the impoverished saints in Judea doesn't have a lot to do with missions. It has a lot to do with mercy. But I point it out because... Paul uses the same line of argument back in Romans chapter 1 in order to describe why he goes on mission and why he wants to come to Rome and push beyond Rome to the western reaches of the empire. Look at Romans 1 verse 14. He says I am under obligation, literally says I am in debt both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So that same sense of moral debt, which drove the Macedonians and the Achaeans to give generously and sacrificially and joyfully to the needs of the Judean saints is the same sense of moral debt, which drove Paul to the mission field to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish to preach the gospel to them. He's saying, I owe them the gospel because of the tremendous grace, which I have freely received through Christ. And so here's the principle that I think ought to drive missional churches and missionaries. Unmerited grace, that is grace and blessing that you didn't work for, that you don't deserve. Unmerited grace imposes a moral debt. Watch closely. Not to God. Paul doesn't say, I was in debt to God. I'm indebted to God. You you can't be in debt to God. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Grace doesn't impose that kind of debt. So unmerited grace imposes a moral debt. Not to God. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But to those who face the same desperate need I once faced. And missionaries understand they're compelled by that sense of moral obligation. It drives them to preach the gospel to Greeks and to barbarians. And missional churches understand this sense of moral obligation. It drives them to give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully to those who are spiritually impoverished and famished just as they once were. We've got to... Feel a sense of moral obligation to those who don't have the gospel if we're going to sacrifice the comforts and the luxuries that it's going to take to sacrifice to get them the gospel. Fourth, in order for a mission partnership to work, both the missionary and the missional church need to have a shared sense of mission prayer, which comes from verses 30 to 32. I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So financial provision is not the only way that a church partners with missionaries. Fervent prayer is also needed. Notice the way Paul thought about this. These these verses give us a glimpse into the relationship between missions and prayer as Paul understood it. Note first that prayer, according to Paul, is striving. It's a word which denotes a, a wrestling or a fighting. We get the word agonize from this word. Missionary prayer, in other words, in the way that Paul describes it is not a once in a quarter mention of the missionary's name in a worship service that's that's not fervent prayer it's a striving together with the missionary the missional church at home the missionary on the field yet striving together for the work of the gospel question do you wrestle in prayer for your missionaries in the work of the gospel That's what Paul is calling the missional church to. Likewise, the missionary must know that they cannot strive in prayer alone. They need praying churches to strive together with them. Second, Paul asks for prayer because he knows that there's real danger that his ministry will be hindered in Jerusalem by those who are unbelieving. And this, of course, ended up happening, which we earlier chalked up to God's overruling providence. But there was also the danger that the saints in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem might reject the financial aid that he was bringing from the Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia because of the lingering racial tensions between Jew and Gentile. This too would have hindered Paul's ministry because as the apostle to the Gentiles, the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, he needed the affirmation of the Jerusalem church if the global church was to be truly one. And then third, Paul hopes that the result of this striving together in prayer will be that he is finally able to come to Rome and to be refreshed in their company. In other words, the missionary movements of Paul were directly linked with the missionary prayers of the Roman church. Look closely at verses 30 to 32, and notice the the flow of cause and effect. That, that are happening. First, he says, strive together with me in prayer in order that I might be delivered and that my service might be acceptable. In order that I might come to you with joy. If you turn those statements around, if the Roman church does not pray, Paul might not be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and his service might not be acceptable to the Jerusalem saints and he might not come to Rome. In other words, missionary prayer is not a formality. It's powerful and effective, so says the missionary apostle. Finally, we return to the place that we began. In order for a mission partnership to work, both the missionary and the missional church must have a shared sense of mission pleasure. That is, they must be in it for the joy not out of some teeth-gritting sense of duty. Duty is not a sufficient motivator for sacrifice. It won't last. Churches will not sacrifice to get the gospel to the nations on a year-in, year-out basis out of a sense of duty. Delight is the only sustainable motivation for sacrifice. And the accomplishment of the Great Commission is going to take a lot of sacrifice. The sacrifice of money, of resources, of people, of lives. But there's so much pleasure to be had in the mission. Here's how I get that. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. The fruit of the spirit is what? Joy. And the spirit was given in order that the mission might be accomplished. Acts one, eight, you will receive power when the Holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If the spirit is given to the church, that the church might accomplish the mission. And if the fruit of the spirit is joy, does it not stand to reason that the more we're about the task of accomplishing the mission, the more the fruit of joy is born in our lives? Does that stand to reason? It makes sense to me. Normal life is boring. It's dull. It's depressing. Live, work, die. Die. But living, working, earning, giving, praying, going for the sake of Christ among the nations is where the pleasure is found, both presently and eternally. To give your life to accomplish the great commission among the nations and among your own nation is to make your life count. Now, I'm going to tell you where I get this from this text and then I'm going to close. There's two places. Paul says first that the Macedonians and the Achaeans, verse 26, were well pleased to make a contribution to the impoverished saints in Judea. In other words, they got a lot of pleasure out of it. It's just so much fun to give to these people. Well, who thinks like that? Nobody nobody thinks it's fun to get rid of your money unless you're doing it as a fruit of the Spirit. But that's what they're thinking. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is even more explicit regarding the Macedonians' pleasure. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You get what Paul's saying there, right? They begged Paul to take their money to the saints of Judea. Why? Out of the abundance of their joy? See, the Macedonians knew that there was greater pleasure in the mission than there was in the money. And so out of the abundance of their joy, they begged Paul for the privilege of giving to the saints. That's the first place I get it. The second place, Paul says in verse 32 that he looks forward to coming to Rome with joy in order to be refreshed in their company. Paul's talking about that shared sense of joy. We experienced some of it last weekend. That shared sense of joy when a missionary and a missional church who are partnered together in the mission of making Christ known among the nations, when they come together again at last, it's joy. That joy is the smile of God upon those churches and those individuals who have their priorities straight. So we're going we're to wrap up this four-week focus upon missions and the local church just by asking the question, so what, what are we going to do about it? We've been talking about this for six weeks now. What are we going to do about it? Because we have a choice. We can either let these six weeks, the study of Romans 15, pass us by and move on to the next topic that we may likewise study and then move on and forget, Or, we can be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. The question that is before us this morning as a church and as individuals is, are we going to get in the game and give ourselves to the Great Commission? Are we going to live our lives in such a way that a hundred years from now, we're going to be glad we did what we did and we gave what we gave? Looking back upon all that was sacrificed and saying with David Livingston, I never made a sacrifice.